In October 2021, Sotheby's Photographs sold a photograph by Margaret Burke White. It was a stylized study of a portion of radio loudspeakers, made in 1933. And of course, as there often is, there was an amazing story behind this photograph and the woman who made it. It's a story of an important commission, a situation that turned into a pressure cooker of stress, an artist struggling to retain respect, and photographs that remain as evidence of all of this drama. So without further ado, I bring you the story of the purloined photographs of Rockefeller Center. This is The Expert Eye. Photographer Margaret Burke White had an incredibly fascinating life. And it's important when you talk about Burke White that you also acknowledge that her life was completely unlike other women of her generation. Burke White was born in 1904. She turned 16 before women finally gained the right to vote. And although the world was changing fast, domesticity, motherhood, and homemaking were still valued above all else for women. There wasn't a lot of consideration for the ladies who chose career over family, and importantly, there were very few women working as a professional photographer. But Margaret Burke White was set to change all of that. While she was a student at Cornell, she found some success selling her photographs of the school building and grounds. And it was here that she honed her ability to photograph architecture and industrial subjects with flair. Gaining confidence and knowing she was good at this kind of work, she moved to Cleveland and set about photographing steel mills, like Otis Steele, processing her film in her kitchenette and operating an office out of her living room. Her photographs had been run in several Midwest newspapers, and she had been receiving what she called interested nibbles regarding future work from Chrysler Motors and Republic Steel. But then her photographs came to the attention of Henry Luce. And Luce was the publisher of Time magazine, but he was starting a brand new publication called Fortune, primarily aimed at businessmen. He appreciated the way her dramatic photographs idealized industry in a sleek, stylish way. It was 1929, and Margaret Burke White was only 25 years old. At Luce's request, she moved to New York and became Fortune Magazine's first female photographer. For the next three years, Burke White worked for Fortune. She made three different trips to Russia. She exhibited her work in museums, she lectured, and she endorsed products like Maxwell House coffee and Camel cigarettes. It was a period of intense work that was driven by magazine and industrial commissions. So her work was driven purely by the needs of her clientele. But she had the ability to take a thoroughly dull subject and make it look sexy. There are no sweaty workers in the photographs. There's no dirt or smoke or chemical waste. It's just sweet, sweet progress and optimism in the form of gleaming, shiny, beautiful nuts and bolts. 
and it was this type of work that set her up perfectly for commissions that stayed away from political or social statements, sticking purely to the subject at hand. But let's rewind to 1930, when she had just moved to New York and she got her gig at Fortune. They sent her to photograph the newly completed Chrysler building. And in her autobiography, Burke White says that when she learned there were gargoyles on top of the building, she instantly wanted a studio there. But when she asked to rent space, the building's landlord didn't want to rent to her because she was a woman. And they assumed that soon she would get married and would give up on photography, and then they'd have no one to pay the rent. These people really did not know Margaret Burke White. But luckily, Fortune Magazine intervened, and she got her studio. It was from this space atop the Chrysler building that she made her famous photograph of one of the two imposing gargoyles. She grew so fond of the colossal beasts that she named them Min and Bill, and they kept company with her actual pet alligators that lived on the terrace. That's right, she had pet alligators on her terrace. She said she would toss them big slabs of raw beef, which they playfully tore apart. And she had turtles who lived on the balconies as well, until sadly, they were eaten by the alligators. From these stories, you're probably getting a pretty good picture of what kind of person Margaret Burke White was. She was very intense, eccentric, and charming. She had great strength of character and individuality, and although she had an erratic schedule and enormous demands, she was always put very well together and had self-confidence. Her manner was brisk, but her smile was brilliant. And I think what we can gather from all of this is that because of the work she was doing, being the first female photojournalist at Fortune, traveling the world, going into male-run factories, being her own boss, all of these experiences required her to be a person of great strength to break with conventional expectations of what society thought a woman should do and be. What she learned through all of this is that while it was hard to get started in the, this line of work, once she got going, it was easier in a way. And the reason for that was that she was a novelty. She got attention for being a woman in a mostly male field, but she wasn't getting respect for her work itself. She got endorsements from Maxwell House and her speaking engagements because she was an anomaly. And this, of course, is a sad but true fact, because no matter how hard she worked, she was getting attention, but not equal footing. By 1933, she was behind on her rent, and it seems like she was in debt to everyone. Luckily, a big commission was coming her way. A hotly anticipated building was nearing completion. This building was 30 Rockefeller Plaza, and of course, today, it's where you see the taping of Saturday Night Live in Studio 8H, or The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon in Studio 6B. And in 1984, in Studio 1A, The Today Show ran an episode in which a woman claimed that her toaster was possessed by the devil. But back in 1933, it was radio, radio, radio. And the thing about really big buildings is they need really big art. You need paintings, photo murals, and big bas-relief sculptures to cover the enormous amount of square footage. 
And what I find really interesting about 30 Rock is that it was built at this really crazy time when sensibilities and tastes were shifting really wildly. And what happens is that at 30 Rockefeller Plaza, it seems that the art directors were not really sure what direction to go. So things kind of blew up. While a lot of the sculpture was Art Deco in style, they chose a painter named Diego Rivera to create a massive three-part mural for the lobby. The subject was Man at the Crossroads, and it was meant to show aspects of contemporary social and scientific culture. Now, this seems so weird to me. If you're the Rockefellers, one of the families most associated with capitalism in the United States, then why would you choose a painter who is unapologetically communist to paint a mural for the lobby of your crowning piece of New York real estate? Perhaps they didn't anticipate that Rivera would paint something they didn't like because they knew each other socially. Or perhaps they were just thinking about the splash that the mural would make in the press. NBC, one of the biggest tenants, still needed something for their studio lobby. And this would be the space where you would wait if you were heading into the studio to see Bob Hope's radio program. They needed something splashy and bold. So they hired Margaret Burke White to make a 160-foot photographic mural on the subject of radio. And this could not have been a more perfect project for Burke White. Her idea was called The Story of Radio, and it would feature close-up, stylized photographs of microphones, receiving tubes, loudspeakers, condenser coils, and transmitting tubes. And at this point, I bet you were thinking that I forgot to talk about the actual photograph that we sold at Sotheby's, but I was getting to it. We sold a study from this mural, which showed amplifier speakers lined up in rows, the shape of each conical speaker mirroring the other, each one leading to the next in a very satisfying industrial age composition that was more about shape and shadow than about the actual purpose of the object depicted. And a big plus for Margaret was that another photographer, a guy by the name of Drix Durier, was going to do the printing and installation for the project. The name Drix was short for Hendrick. He was from a very old, exceptionally wealthy New York family. They ran a cornstarch manufacturing company in Glen Cove, Long Island, which at one time employed nearly 600 people. Unfortunately, the starch works were not well loved by the people of Glen Cove, who objected to the volumes of waste produced by converting corn to cornstarch, which was flushed into the creek and settled in a putrefying, smelly layer of organic filth. And sadly, it seemed like the family was plagued by sadness, mental illness, and disaster. Drix's father killed himself. His cousin Frank killed himself. His cousin Lewis killed himself. And another cousin, Walter, had broken his neck at the Glen Cove Yacht Club while diving in shallow water. His uncle killed his grandfather, apparently telling the police when they arrived that he had received a message from Washington telling him to do it. Oh, you want more? Okay, well, his great-grandfather had lost an arm in a buzzsaw accident and when the man was 80, he was on board a steamship that caught fire and sank. And in case she thought that maybe they were actually really nice people, 
Drix's great uncle was described as a dissolute to an unspeakable degree, coarse, rude, and vulgar to the point of hardly ever coming out of a discussion without the intervention of physical force. So anyway, Drix was a commercial and society photographer with commissions for shooting the interiors of wealthy families' homes for magazines. And just like Margaret, he too had endorsements. His was with Seagram's Whiskey. And in an ad for the brand, it says he enjoys the hobby of foreign cars. So basically you have Margaret Burke White, who was unable to pay her studio rent, and Drix, who made a hobby of collecting foreign cars. But anyway, back to the murals. Margaret's trouble with Drix started pretty early on. She was working feverishly to finish the commission, but apparently Drix started complaining loudly to NBC that she wasn't sending in her negatives fast enough. Margaret wrote in her diary the following. This would be the biggest mural in the West and nobody was going to stop me. If Drix Durier develops a lot of complications, I think it would be rather fun to have a good fight. Drix said that her negatives were unprintable, which honestly, some of them might have been. Who knows? But what I do know is that Burke White was a very skilled photographer. And the subject of these photographs, sleek close-ups of industrial objects, were right up her alley. She could do that material with one hand tied behind her back. So I have to wonder what the real problem was. Well, rather than the quality of her work, it may have been his irritation that she was more successful than he was, and that she was chosen to be the photographer, and he was only to be the printer. We also know that he called her a, quote, old maid, when in reality, she was only 29 years old, and that he speculated that she must have been a prostitute for being able to afford a studio in a fancy place like the Chrysler Building. Finally, he claimed that her work schedule was so grueling that the only explanation of how she was getting so much done is that she must be a dope fiend. I mean, it's pretty clear that he was grasping at straws in order to put NBC off of Burke White, and the arguments were getting more and more ridiculous. The building was supposed to officially open on the 1st of May, 1933, but there was a big problem with the Diego Rivera mural. While the Rockefeller family had originally approved the sketches for the mural, Rivera had added a portrait of Lenin and a depiction of a May Day parade. And when Nelson Rockefeller saw those additions, he became incensed and demanded that the offending elements be removed. And Rivera refused. So in May 1933, Rockefeller ordered the mural to be covered with stretched canvas until they could have time to peel it off the wall. And there was yet more drama at the unveiling of the NBC photo murals in December of 1933, which should have been a pretty cut and dry project, but it turned out to be an episode that Burke White doesn't even mention in her autobiography, probably because it was so bad. She realized that something horrible had happened between the time she passed her negatives to Drix and when they made it on the wall. Drix had signed his own name not once, but four times on the mural, and had even re-photographed some of her exact compositions himself, inserting his new photographs into her composition. 
Margaret immediately took action. It was the only time in her life she had to hire a publicist to set the record straight. And ultimately, Drix's name and photographs were taken down, hers were put back up, and she received her rightful credit. The mural was a hit and was written up favorably in every paper in town. Burke White went on to live an exciting life and had a celebrated career. Sadly, at the age of 49, she started developing symptoms of Parkinson's and finally succumbed to the sickness in 1971. So I have to ask you in the end, which name do you know from the drama-filled 30 Rock Commission? I'm guessing it's not Drix Durier. I mean, I thought this was obvious, but I guess I have to say it. Don't sign your name on what you didn't make and don't take things that don't belong to you. And finally, obviously, don't put turtles on the terrace with your alligators. This episode was written by me, Amy Flieger, and edited by Yvonne Soro in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. My main source for this episode was Margaret Burke White, a biography by Vicki Goldberg. I'll be putting a full list of sources and photographs of all the players in this episode on the blog at theexperteye.org. Until next time, Google cautiously, blacklight judiciously, and do not handle prints under the influence of intoxicants.